Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi. This is All Things Tudor, and I'm Deb Hunter. Today, our guest is Dr. Joanne Paul. Joanne, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, you're very welcome. And I can't wait to talk about your book, The House of Dudley. Could you fill us in on not only your accolades for this book, but your career? I'm very curious, and I know the All Things Tudor crowd is too. Oh, well, I'll do my best. I don't like to sort of (laughs) sing my own praises, talk through my own accolades, but I can say a bit about my background. So I have a PhD in history from Queen Mary University of London, and I'm currently honorary senior lecturer at the University of Sussex, both in the UK. But you might detect that I'm from the other side of the Atlantic. I am, in fact, Canadian and got my first two degrees there. Uh, House of Dudley is my first trade book, but my third book, singled author, monograph. The first two were more academic books. They're a bit drier. (laughs) One was on Thomas More and the other was on advice giving in the Tudor and Stuart courts. The House of Dudley, though, is a narrative history. So it's, it's meant to be quite exciting, quite gripping. And it really is in the style of a novel, though everything in it is heavily researched. um, And you can find pages and pages of notes at the back. It came out almost exactly six months ago now, celebrated its six month anniversary in the world this past weekend. It's done fairly well, I think. It was well reviewed in a variety of newspapers here in the UK, including the Telegraph, the Times, the Daily Mail. And there was a review in the Spectator, in a Lit Review, various other places. And yeah, the Times said it was one of the books of, of 2022. It was one of the Telegraph summer reads of 2022. And generally, the feedback has been, has been extremely positive, I'm very pleased to say. Well, I have to ask you, since you're Canadian, what led to your interest in Tudor history? I think I started out in Tudor history like a lot of us do, which is by reading historical fiction, by watching historical dramas. My mom in particular introduced me to some of the classics like Elizabeth in Essex and Anne of a Thousand Days when I was very young, as well as reading accessible history, people like Alison Weir, of course. And I just found the period very rich and, and very interesting. But that sort of got left behind, I think, when I started my studies in earnest. And I was particularly pursuing degrees in politics. So my undergraduate is in history and politics and my MA is in politics. But I found increasingly what I was interested in, in my politics degree, was in theories that emerged in the 16th century. And actually, there started to be this overlap between my more sort of hobbyish interest 
in the 16th century and my more academic interest in the 16th century. And so when I came to study my PhD, I looked at advice giving in the Tudor and Stuart courts, which then led me to look at all sorts of documents related to counsellors themselves, which the Dudleys were. And in particular, the, the sort of clandestine manuscript, the secret pamphlet that gets passed around the Elizabethan court, which opens the book, The House of Dudley, which talks about the Dudleys and their nefarious deeds. I came across that in my PhD and went, man, this would make such an interesting book to look at this family and really try to understand what their relationships were to each other, what their relationships were to the monarchs that they served or perhaps attempted to overthrow, and what really drove this family to continuously, generation by generation, rise so high and fall so hard. Well, let's talk about your book. Your book is very intriguing, Joanne, and I'm just amazed at the research you put into this. Let's start with Henry VIII. How did the Dudley family play into the start of the Tudor monarchy? Well, the Dudleys really stand at the foundation of the Tudor dynasty well back into the reign of of Henry VII. The first Dudley that I talk about in the book is Edmund Dudley. You might recognize his name. He's usually paired up with Richard Empson, Empson and Dudley, these two wicked counselors of Henry VII. He should have really been a nobody, though. We shouldn't be talking about him 500 years later. He was the eldest son of a younger son of a baron. He was a lawyer. He had some, a few roles in London and a bit of a, a sort of academic reputation in some niche areas of the law, but he wasn't anyone of of any great standing. The only reason we know about him today is because his niche academic interest just so happened to be exactly the sort of talent and expertise that Henry VII was looking for at the turn of the 16th century. Henry VII had just lost his eldest son, he'd lost his wife, and the whole of the Tudor dynasty was really resting on the tiny little shoulders of young Prince Henry, who would become Henry VIII. And Henry VII was looking for a way to strengthen his very young dynasty, to shore up power and control in the crown. And one of the ways in which he could do that was by raising revenue and tying people to him in bonds of financial obligation. And this was the sort of sphere in which Edmund Dudley had quite a bit of expertise. He knew the law very well, and he knew the details of the law, which might allow Henry VII to essentially exploit the law to get money out of people. And so Edmund Dudley in 1504 begins his account book for Henry VII. And in less than four years, he's able to raise uh, £120,000 for the crown, which sounds like a fair bit of money, but we have to remember that that's £150 million in today's money, which I suppose I could do the conversion to American, but it's about it's about equal at the moment. But it's a great, great deal of money. It raises the revenue of the crown by uh, over half, and he, he does this essentially single-handedly. So he is really, really pivotal in establishing a firm foundation for the Tudor dynasty. This, though, only really makes him popular with Henry VII himself, because the way he goes about doing this 
is at the very least not very moral and certainly not very popular. He is browbeating people, employing people known as promoters or informers who essentially go around and, and snitch on the people of London, letting Dudley know where there might be an opportunity to get some coin out of people. And he bribes juries. It's not how we would hope people would be acting then or now. And he ends up, a lot of people end up in the tower. And so there's this real sort of move against him, both in London, and we can see evidence of that. Um, the London Chronicle, for instance, has horrible things to say about Edmund Dudley. It's a contemporary chronicle. Um, and we also know that in the court, there was quite a group forming against him as well. And so it's just the favor of Henry VII that's really standing between Edmund and this tide of resentment. Well, it's very understandable how 150 million pounds would make him very appealing to the king, isn't it? Absolutely. Henry VII seems very pleased with Dudley's work. I mean, one of the questions is how responsible was Dudley for the work that he does on behalf of, of Henry VII? In other words, was Edmund Dudley just executing the king's will. He later says that it is the king who is the executor of the wrong that he did. Or did Henry VII just sort of oversee it all, ask for some money, and Edmund Dudley was the one who, who chose to be so horrible to these people. There's a story in the book about a haberdasher who is uh, essentially a seller of tools for sewing buttons and pins and the like, named Thomas Suniff, who, who really has his life destroyed by Edmund Dudley. And that's just one story of hundreds, if not thousands of people who suffer because of Edmund Dudley and sitting above him, Henry VII. Henry VII certainly signs every page of that account book in which Dudley is accruing all this money for him. And like I said, Dudley goes on to defend himself later once he suffers his fall, saying that it was it was really all the king's will and he was just doing as the king commanded. I think there's probably a gray area there. And it's a very interesting question about sort of who is responsible for all of this suffering. But certainly Henry VII is the one who benefits most of all. And Edmund Dudley benefits as well. The inventory of his house shows a growing amount of wealth, which he was not shy about showing off. So everyone did well under Henry VII. Let's move on to Henry VIII. What happened to Edmund? Did he outlive Henry VII? What do we need to know about the change of monarchs here? It's always a change of monarchs that suggests a big sea change for people in the court and, and certainly the Dudleys. With only Henry VII protecting Edmund Dudley, his death essentially makes Dudley and, and his entire family very, very vulnerable. Henry VII, when he dies, his death is kept secret for a few days so that others in the court can uh, essentially gather power, make allies, set out what is going to happen with this change in regime. And the day, the very, very day that Henry VIII is, is proclaimed in London and Ben Dudley is arrested and taken to the tower. So his fall absolutely exactly coincides with the death of Henry VII. 
he ends up in the Tower of London. He's in there quite a few months while the crown sort of takes care of business. Henry VII is interred. He has his funeral. Uh, Henry VIII has his coronation. They also have to um, bury Margaret Beaufort, who dies at this around the same time. So once all of that is done, they finally turn their attention to what to do with Edmund Dudley. And he's tried at the Guildhall. Certainly, this whole time, Edmund Dudley had no idea really what he was accused of. It was very unlikely that he would have been told. And it probably came as a surprise that he was accused, not just of some form of corruption or skimming off the top, but he's accused of, of treason in the fullest sense. He's accused of attempting to overthrow the monarchy itself, even considering regicide, which are, they're entirely trumped up charges. There's no evidence whatsoever that Dudley had or even would consider that sort of thing. But he, he pleads innocent, but he's found guilty and is sentenced to hanging, drawing, and quartering as a traitor would be. This isn't carried out, however, for quite some time. I mean, he sort of languishes in the tower for a time. He languishes, but he manages to write a book while he's in there. He writes a book of political advice. He also answers a lot of the complaints of those people that he had prosecuted, even persecuted, perhaps is the right word. And this is when he says, you know, that he was, the king was the executor of the wrong and all the money went to the king himself. And if he had any power to right those wrongs, he would, but he doesn't. And so he asks these people uh, who are begging for their money and their livelihoods back to, to pray for him because he too is in dire straits. It's only when Henry VIII goes on his summer progress that the order comes back to have Dudley executed. Uh, this is probably because Henry VIII encounters such resentment to the work of Dudley and others as he goes on progress that it's really fundamental to the popularity of this new reign that he washes it clean of some of the sins of the reign that went before, which means that he really has to sacrifice Edmund Dudley for his own popularity, even as he spends quite quickly the money that Dudley had accrued for him. And so the order comes back when Henry VIII is on progress. And so in August 1510, very early into the reign of Henry VIII, Edmund Dudley is finally executed. The Tower execution and the Dudley family seem to be a running motif in Tudor dynasty history, don't they? Oh, completely. Yeah, so Edmund is not the first Dudley to end up on the scaffold, nor is he the first of the politically motivated executions that we see in the reign of Henry VIII. It's his son, uh, John Dudley, who we essentially turn to next in the book. He's only six at his father's execution. We can't know what he thought about it. Then we get the barest glimpse much, much later of what he thinks about it later in life. But he goes on to serve the king who executed his father. He's knighted in France, going to war for Henry VIII. He joins his court and he does very well. This probably has to do with the women in his life, actually. And, and one of the things I was very dedicated to in writing the book was making sure that it was a family history. It was a family biography, which meant I wasn't just talking about the men. The women really come through, I think, as essential 
members of the family who constantly protect and preserve it. And so John ends up having a place in the court, largely because of his mother, who ends up marrying the illegitimate uncle to Henry VIII, a man called Arthur Plantagenet. So she essentially becomes Henry VIII's aunt, which gives her a great deal of possible influence and probably secures a future for her son. And then John is placed in a household, uh, the Guilfords, and marries the daughter of his guardian, a woman named Jane Guilford. And she's very adept at court. She makes all sorts of connections. She's in the household of several of Henry VIII's queens, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, and she's very, very close friends with Catherine Parr. At the same time, the Dudleys are very close to the Seymours, who obviously do well when Jane Seymour is on the throne, but continue to do well throughout the reign of Henry VIII because the heir is a Seymour himself, Prince Edward being the son of Jane Seymour. So these connections, they know Cromwell very well too, and there's lots of letters between John Dudley and Cromwell, mean that the Dudleys not only survive this tumultuous very dangerous court, but they thrive there as well. And so this time when there's a regime change, when we see the death of Henry VIII, the Dudleys don't suffer in the way that they had when the previous king had died and Henry VIII had come to the throne. They're actually in a very, very secure and very powerful position as we enter the reign of Edward VI. How did their association with the Seymour family assist them in that regime change? The relationship between the Dudleys and the Seymours were essential to their ability to navigate this regime change and to have such a high position of power in the reign of of Edward VI. Edward Seymour and John Dudley had been friends for decades. They had, it seems, met essentially as young men, we might call teenagers, when they had fought in France together. They had both been knighted days apart, fighting in France in 1523, and it seems had remained friends throughout the reign of of Henry VIII. There are letters between them. They're doing property deals together. John is always sort of one step behind Edward in promotion. As soon as Edward Seymour leaves a role, it seems that John Dudley takes it up. And then probably every case, or at least a few of them that we know of, it's because Edward Seymour had suggested John for the post. They appear to be very, very close. And so when Edward Seymour becomes Duke of Somerset and Lord Protector for his nephew, Edward VI, John is really there as a right-hand man. He becomes Lord Chamberlain. And ambassadors talk about everything in the court being done by the two of them. Although it is Seymour Somerset who is in charge and, and king in all but name, he Dudley is seen as, as his very close ally and very close friend. Well, let's talk about how everything goes pear-shaped with the Lord Protectorate and how Dudley was there to pick up the pieces. This is sort of the first moment that John Dudley often enters our awareness when we look at the Tudor court. I think it's important that we see all of that history that I've just very briefly detailed. And of course, lots, lots more in the book. We find out, for instance, how he's involved with the birth of, of Mary, Queen of Scots, so how he's involved with the sinking of the Mary Rose, all of these things and his relationships with all of the queens of Henry VIII as well. But for most of us, John Dudley really emerges once Somerset Seymour 
disappears. And it's really Dudley who is crucial, or maybe even takes a lead in the fall of Seymour. Seymour had created a lot of enemies in taking up the Lord Protector role, in particular in ruling in a way that they deemed to be, well, both illegitimate and simply simply bad. Um, he wasn't doing a very good job. In particular, he wasn't taking advice from the council, whom which he was supposed to be ruling. And so John Dudley, after putting down a rebellion essentially against Somerset, marches his army back to London and participates in the protector's overthrow. It's very clear, though, at this point that he doesn't want Seymour executed. This isn't an attempt to do away with him as a competitor, for instance, for power. There's a scene reported to us, so we we don't know that it happened, but it at least speaks to the rumors in the court at the time that during a council meeting, several of Seymour's enemies are insisting that he be executed and Dudley apparently, with his hand on his sword, yells at them, he that would have his blood would have mine also. And it's both a defense and, and sort of a threat in one. And because Dudley is such a military leader, such a commander, this seems to shut everyone up. And so Seymour is not killed. And in fact, he begins to be rehabilitated. He's brought back into the council. John's son marries Seymour's daughter. There's an attempt to bring the families back together. However, this apparently does not go well. And John becomes increasingly exasperated at Seymour trying to get back to the position that he had before. There's this great letter, which I relate in the book, where he essentially says, what is he thinking? How can he think to have that position again when it's still so misliked what he did before, when there's still such opposition to him? What on earth has he got in his mind? So eventually Seymour is arrested. He's accused of various things, most of which he defends himself against. The one charge which he doesn't put up such defense is that he tried to have John Dudley killed. And he says, well, he, he hadn't determined to kill him, but he had considered it. So there is this sort of admission in there that Seymour was plotting against Dudley, who at this point is Duke of Northumberland. And so Seymour is executed. And again, we know this event from history, or many of us perhaps do. It's presented to us as, as a turning point and the, the rise of the Duke of Northumberland, who plays such a pivotal role in the succession crisis after Edward VI. But I think this long history that I was able to relate in the book and that these letters really show this sort of deeper emotional side to the relationship between Seymour and Dudley is very, very important. And I think we miss something when we just look at the event itself and not this long history between these two men. Very good point. Let's talk about the treacherous waters, we'll call it, that they had to navigate from Edward VI to Mary I. So this is where we enter the succession crisis of 1553, and really both the height of the Dudley family and its its absolute lowest point. So when Edward VI is falling ill at the beginning of 1553, he writes something called the device for the succession. And this sets out essentially his will, and I mean that in 
both senses of the word, for what should happen to the crown should he die. And in it, he skips over the much, much better claims of his two half-sisters, Mary, daughter of Catherine of Aragon, and Elizabeth, daughter of Anne Boleyn, and instead gives the crown to his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, who is the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister, so so a, a much further relation away. And there's been all sorts of questions about why Edward did this. And one of the suggestions often is, is that he did it because the Duke of Northumberland forced him to, convinced him to, stood over him and threatened him in order to do it, that, that somehow it was Northumberland who sits behind the device for the succession. And this is because very soon after, probably he writes it, or maybe just before, it's, it's all a bit murky. Lady Jane Grey becomes Lady Jane Dudley. <laughs> she marries one of the sons of John Dudley, Guilford. And so the crown, it looks like, is going to go to John Dudley's daughter-in-law and by a sort of extension, his son as well, and that we might see a, a Dudley dynasty, in fact. At the end of the day, we can't really know what role he played, whether he was taking advantage of the fact that Edward VI was insisting on this himself. And certainly Edward was 16. He knew his own mind. He, if anything, was quite um, firm and zealous. And so he may have been the prime or, or only factor motivator in this decision to skip over his half-sisters. Or Dudley, as Duke of Northumberland, may have played a stronger role. We, we just can't be sure. What we do know is that when Edward VI does die, it is Jane Grey Dudley who is proclaimed queen. And she is moved to the Tower, which is, is where it's traditional for monarchs to stay before their coronation. And she is, she is declared by the council. She's declared across the country as queen. Of course, there is someone who has something to say about this, and this is the elder half-sister of, of Edward VI, Mary, who, of course, as we know, does eventually become Mary I. Even her closest allies and supporters don't think she has the ability to overcome the might of the Duke of Northumberland and the council. They think that she'll either fold or flee, that she'll either allow the Dudleys who have ridden out to capture her, to capture her and, and bring her to London and that she will bend and acknowledge Jane or be imprisoned for the rest of her life for refusing to acknowledge her. Or she'll flee, for instance, to Spain. She does neither. She has a lot of supporters. She's a very significant landholder in her own right and is able to marshal a lot of support. And so when John Dudley does ride out with his sons to meet her, as soon as he goes, essentially, the council switches sides and declares for Mary. And so he's stuck between a rock and a hard place in Cambridge and has no choice but to declare for Mary himself and allow himself to be arrested. And so he's taken back to the tower with his sons and imprisoned. He then, like his father, is accused of treason. Unlike his father, he did actually do it. We have a great account of the trial, and I, I won't go through it now. It's in the book. But his defense, in a way, is, is very convincing, despite the fact that he did, of course, oppose the now queen, Mary I. And he is executed for that treason. Unlike his father as well, whereas John had been essentially safe and sound when his father was executed, John's sons are not. They too are imprisoned in the tower, are convicted of treason, and essentially await the axe to fall on them as well. 
A quick question about Edward the Sixth will. Why would he have left his sisters out of his will? That would be my first question. Do you have any insight to share with us on that? It's a big question why Edward decides to write the device for the succession, which contravenes his own father's will, in which the crown would first pass to Mary if Edward had no heirs, and then to Elizabeth if if neither of them did. A lot of the time it's held uh, to do with religion. Obviously, that's part of it. Religion is always a part of it when it comes to the Tudor period. Mary was a devout Catholic. She and Edward had exchanged words about her Catholicism. Edward, of course, was what we would now call a Protestant, um, interested in the reform religion. And Elizabeth seemed to be Protestant, but might have been a bit of a question mark. And so I, I think that's part of it, whereas Jane Grey was devoutly Protestant and had shown herself to be. I think more important than that, though, and if you look at the document itself, and you can find it online, and I encourage you to look it up, you can find the whole document. And it's very, very clear. A lot of Tudor documents are obviously very difficult to read for us today. But this one isn't so bad because it is in Edward's hand and his hand is fairly legible. You can see that the document has a lot of edits to it. And if you look closely at those edits, especially in the first few lines, you'll see that the document originally said, to the Lady Jane's heirs male. And so the crown wasn't originally supposed to go to Jane. It was supposed to go to her sons. And then Edward changes it. He gets rid of the S and adds to the Lady Jane and her heirs male. And that and her means that the crown goes to her. And I think that really indicates something to us in terms of Edward's motivations. It seems clear to me that what he was looking for was not just an ideally Protestant heir, but he was looking for a male heir. All of the available heirs were female. And in the 16th century, really, that was a no-go. Women couldn't be trusted to rule for all sorts of reasons. Henry VIII even used it as a reason for his annulment to Catherine of Aragon and marrying Anne Boleyn was because they had only produced a female heir, and that was just inconceivable. Importantly, neither Mary or Elizabeth are married, and marrying them was a highly complicated process that would take a very long time because they were the children of of Henry VIII. And diplomatically, it would become very, very complicated to marry them off and probably would have taken a long time. Whereas Jane Grey, as I said, was either just about to be married or had just been married to Guilford Dudley. In other words, when he composes the device for the succession, Jane Grey could already be pregnant with that male heir. That male heir wouldn't just be a wish, a dream, an imagination. He could already exist. Uh, However, as Edward gets closer to his final illness, as it becomes very, very clear that he might not survive, I think it's at that point that he changes the device and gives it to Jane and her heirs male. I think it's that focus on finding a male heir that really sits behind him skipping over his half-sisters. That makes perfect sense. It really does. What about the concept, the theory that his sisters had been declared illegitimate? Do you think that holds any weight at all? I think that that's another one of those reasons that is used, that previously they had been declared illegitimate. Henry VIII puts them back in the line of succession, but that illegitimacy obviously hangs over them. 
and we see it recur in both of their reigns. And I think that's used as a reason, but I still think that the motivation for him skipping over his half-sisters, which whom he, he had good relationships. You know, he had invited them to court. They had spent time together. They had taken up their position within the court again and had for quite some time. I think his reason for skipping over them had to do partly with religion and mostly to do with the fact that they were both female, more than to do with their legitimacy. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, all things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. And of course, it's so funny for us sitting here 500 years later, even trying to imagine that a female couldn't be a queen. And especially after what we just witnessed worldwide. And of course, it was the age of queens. We had Mary I, Elizabeth I. We had Mary Queen of Scots. There were more queens probably than any other time. And the thought that they thought women couldn't rule, we can't comprehend that, can we? I think it's very, very difficult for us to, and it should be. God, I hope it's difficult for us <laughs> to wrap our heads around it. Um, if it makes sense to you, then I have some reading for you to do. It is difficult for us, but I think it's important to keep in mind that age of queens was largely in the future in 1553. And certainly that the great precedent that is set by Elizabeth I is 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 also in, in the future. And certainly the precedent set by Victoria and Elizabeth II. And England really hadn't had a queen regnant before. Matilda would be the only example, and she was often used as a bad example, a reason why women couldn't rule. There were, I should say, people, men and women, writing about why women could, why they did have the skills and virtues necessary to rule, but I think louder than them were the voices of those who said that they could not. And so there is a debate going on in the 16th century. It isn't a solved or agreed issue. Um, there is debate going on, but I think the louder voices are, were those of the misogynists who thought that women lacked prudence, political prudence, that they were weaker in reason, that they were physically weaker, and it's still the ability to go to war and physically be present in war is, is still important in the middle of the 16th century. And more importantly, that who they married then became a very significant issue because women were meant to be ruled by their husbands. This was, this was known. It was in both classical texts and Christian texts. Women were meant to be ruled by their husbands. Well, how can you then have a queen who is ruler of all if she is being ruled by someone else? But she has to be ruled because she has to be bridled because she's a woman. So there's this real sort of paradox that sits at the heart of the question of a queen regnant. And that was very disturbing to people. That was very concerning. That was very worrying. 
And so I think Edward is, is aware of that. There's, well, there's no way for him not to be aware of that. And I think it is motivating him when he is writing his device for the succession. That's understandable. Okay, let's move into the reign of Mary I. How in the world did the Dudleys navigate that one? Again, we have the women (laughs) there to pick up the pieces and clean up the mess. So when John and his sons are imprisoned, the women primarily are released. His wife, Jane Guilford Dudley, Duchess of Northumberland, immediately sets out to make a plea to Mary I to save her husband and her sons. Uh, She's turned away. She writes letters to women of the court with whom she has relationships, has built relationships over the years, uh, talking about how sick she is, how she can't sleep. I mean, of course not. How she wants to save her poor sons and her husband, she says, is the most best gentleman any woman could ever be matched with all. So she's desperate to save them. Obviously, that doesn't work in the case of her husband, who is very quickly executed, but that certainly doesn't stop her. And with her are her daughters and daughters-in-law, the wives of her sons who are locked in the tower. And they really begin a campaign to release the Dudley sons. And we know it is thanks to them that they are released. There's a, a letter that states it very, very clearly that it is the work of the son's wives that has them released. We know Mary Dudley Sidney, who marries Henry Sidney. It's Henry Sidney who first travels with ambassadors to Philip II, who becomes the husband of Mary I, who seems to first broach the topic of bringing Philip in to fight on the Dudley's behalf. If he does so, well, then the Dudley's will be allies for him. And that seems to work. The Duchess of Northumberland, when she dies in 15, early 1555, her will contains gifts to various Spanish courtiers who are in the court of Philip II in England. And, and those gifts come with the request, sort of the reminder that they are to look after her children. And the date of, of their pardon, her son's pardon, is the same date as her death. So there is this real recognition that it is her who saves them, her, her love and her labor on behalf of her children. So it is the women who ensure a future for the sons of the House of Dudley and their facilitation of a relationship with Philip II. And, and years later, Robert Dudley, one of those sons, talks about how he owes Philip II his life, that it is Philip II who really intervenes on their behalf. But of course, not all of the Dudley sons are saved. Guilford Dudley is executed along with Jane Grey Dudley in 1554. In the same year, the eldest, who shares his name with his father, John Dudley, is released but dies three days later of an illness. And then the remaining sons, Ambrose, Robert, and Henry, travel to France, well, to support the army of Philip II, and only Ambrose and Robert return. So we very swiftly go from 13 children that are had by John and Jane down to just four, two sons, Ambrose and Robert, and two daughters, Mary and Catherine. It's them who see out the reign of Mary I, but they are free. Do you feel like during the reign of Mary I, when Robert Dudley and Elizabeth who would become Elizabeth I were children. Do you feel like that's the time when they bonded? They had both had parents that had been executed. They were 
as I recall, they had a lot of the same teachers. Do you think that set the stage for what was to become when Elizabeth became the queen? Possibly. (laughs) It's difficult to determine the beginning of this really, I mean, beautiful and long-lasting relationship between Robert Dudley and Elizabeth, Elizabeth I. Certainly, there was every opportunity for them to have encountered each other as children, more probably in the court of Edward VI before Mary I, because of the position of Robert's father. Robert probably would have been around the court, and Elizabeth, as we know, certainly was. They probably did share some tutors. We know that Roger Ascombe seems to have been involved in the education of the Dudley boys and also is a schoolmaster for Elizabeth. Very probably, though, they wouldn't have shared a classroom, for instance, but that there was that connection between them. It's often suggested that it's during the reign of Mary I that any pre-existing relationship, as you say, sort of becomes galvanized or cemented in this crucible of persecution because they're both in the tower at the same time. There is no existing evidence, contemporary evidence, that suggests that they found each other in the tower. It was possible for them to have encountered each other. We know that relationships did take place amongst prisoners in the tower, even when they weren't supposed to, but we don't know for sure. What seems to be more likely, based on the evidence, is that Robert may have been funding Elizabeth. He may have been selling off some property in order to get money to Elizabeth. Certainly, we know he sold off property in order to get himself to France to support the army of Philip II. But there might have been money going to Elizabeth as well. There has to have been some sort of relationship between them. And I use that term loosely and broadly, some sort of relationship between them by the death of Mary I, because Robert is one of the first people that Elizabeth thinks about in terms of the proclamation of her reign and putting together a court. He's one of the first names that goes down on the list. I say one of the first names because he isn't one of the first names that her secretary, William Cecil, writes down. It seems that Cecil wanted him in France, ideally as far away from Elizabeth as possible. But when that list is revised in consultation with Elizabeth, it seems Robert is added to that list. So they're obviously aware of each other and obviously there's some sort of relationship between them. Well, thank you for that. Let's talk about how that relationship blossomed once she became queen and what it did for the House of Dudley. Very, very quickly after Elizabeth comes to the throne, Robert is right there. Partly that's to do with the role that he is assigned, which is master of the horse, which means that he often has close physical proximity to Elizabeth when she's riding through London, for instance, or going hunting. But partly he may have been given that position in order for him to have that close physical proximity. There's a bit of a chicken and egg there. And it doesn't take long for the court to start noticing. By the court, I mostly mean ambassadors. That's where all the best court gossip is, is in ambassadors' letters. And they very quickly catch on that something appears to be going on between Elizabeth and her master of the horse, Robert Dudley. And we know from his own accounts that he is paying for picnics together, giving her gifts, and so on. I think, again, this long view is important to us because a lot of this we probably know. We've seen it in TV or film, that there's this 
potentially flirtatious romantic relationship very early on in the reign of Elizabeth between her and Robert Dudley. But what's often lost, I think, in those presentations is the fact that it's very, very soon after his father and brother were executed for treason and he himself was convicted of treason and imprisoned for treason for many years. That hangs, I think, very heavy and is very present in the minds of the people watching this. It had only been six or so years since this had taken place. It was in recent memory. And I think that obviously darkens their view of this potentially budding romance. The other major obstacle, of course, for any romance between Robert and and Elizabeth is the fact that Robert has been married for about 10 years. He married the daughter of a Norfolk gentleman named Amy Robsart during the reign of, of Edward VI and had been married this whole time. This was not a surprise to Elizabeth or anyone else, although it it's presented that way in at least one very good otherwise film. And so alongside the rumours of, of a romantic relationship between Robert and Elizabeth are rumours about what Robert is going to do with the fact that he is married, what he is going to do about his wife. And the suggestion very quickly becomes that he will do away with her, possibly by poison. And there seems to be someone in particular running about the court, particularly in sort of November 1559, uh, spreading this rumor. We don't know who it is. I have some guesses about who they might be working for, (laughs) certainly Robert's enemies. But this seems to be a very prevalent rumor. So... Robert is at court. We know there was some type of intense relationship with him and the queen, and his wife dies mysteriously. So how did that affect him and his family? The death of Amy Robsart Dudley is immediately one of the biggest scandals of the reign of, of Elizabeth I and, and would continue to be one of its biggest scandals throughout her reign. As I said, there had already been rumor for quite some time that something horrible was going to happen to Amy Robesart Dudley. And so the fact that something does happen to her feels like a, a fulfillment of all of this. Amy Robesart Dudley is found dead at the bottom of a flight of stairs in September 1560. We know from the coroner's report, which we have, that she sustained three major injuries. The cause of death is found to be a broken neck, but there are two significant head injuries as well. There are three possibilities for what happens to her. One is, of course, that it's an accident, that she falls down the stairs. And that is what the coroner and his jury determines, that it is an accident. However, the rumor uh, in England and and beyond, even the English ambassador to France talks about his ears glowing with all the gossip about the death of Lady Dudley, is that it's murder, that Robert in particular may have done what he was rumored to, to, to be contemplating and killed his wife. Robert is devastated by the news of the death of his wife, although in particular, none of, none of the letters seem to really talk about being sad that she's gone. He seems immediately worried about his reputation and his place at court, which, I mean, he's, it might come off as very, very cold-hearted, but he's not wrong. That was absolutely the risk. He leaves the court immediately. 
He, of course, might also, depending on what the coroner decides, he does decide it's an accident, but Robert doesn't know that for quite some time, could be hanged for murder. That is a very real possibility for him. But he's very distraught and very concerned about everything he's, he's fought for. And again, I think we are only seven years off the succession crisis. He has lost many members of his family to execution and to politics, essentially. And so that fear has to be very real for him. The third possibility of what might have happened to her is actually suggested by one of her maids in denying it. The maid is asked, what, essentially, what, what do you think happened? Do you think it was an accident? And she says, I think it was an accident neither done by any man nor by herself. And the interviewer is sort of taken aback. What did you mean by that? Did she have an evil plan in her mind? You know, essentially, did, did she plan to kill herself? And the maid quickly denies it and said, oh, no, you know, if I made you think that, that, that wasn't my intention. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing. But it does sort of stick, this suggestion that she might have taken her own life. And this is really bolstered by a conversation that is reported from various sources at the time. And again, it's amazing. We have all of these accounts and all sorts of letters to help us that says that Amy insisted that every servant in her household leave the house that day and go to a fair nearby, which is highly unusual. And when the servants say, no, no, you know, at least one or two of us should stay here. Apparently she got very angry and insisted that all of them leave. And the, the servants themselves were surprised by this, and uh, though they did obey. So something seems to have been going on that day that makes her death, though it was ruled an accident, all the more suspicious. But in terms of the effect, it certainly doesn't clear the way for Robert to marry Elizabeth, which is, I think, part of the reason why we can likely rule Robert out as orchestrating the murder of his wife. I think he was too clever for that. If it was in order to smooth the way for his marriage to the Queen, well, it was never going to do that. It was always going to present more of an obstacle than anything else. William Cecil later, in writing a list of reasons why Robert shouldn't marry the Queen, which he, he did things like that, writes that he Robert was infamed by the death of his wife, essentially that the death of Amy made it impossible for Robert to ever marry the Queen, although attempts and, and rumours would persist for, for decades afterwards. Um, which, of course, really means that it's Robert's enemies who benefit most from the death of Amy Robsart Dudley. And high on that list of people who did not want to see Robert marry the Queen was, of course, William Cecil himself. And we can think about that more. <laughs> um, and there's more about that in the book and how shifty William Cecil is around that time. Well, one thing about Robert, he really moved with a cat-like finesse through the entire Elizabethan era. He seemed to land on his feet every single time, didn't he? I think it's a great way of putting it, cat-like, yes, landing on his feet. And if anyone listening has a cat, you know that, that Grace is often a little bit clumsy as well. <laughs> they do land on their feet, but they contort themselves into all sorts of weird positions in doing so. And I, I think I think probably <laughs> um, that, that describes Robert as well. He does survive the rain and he does manage to always 
end up back in Elizabeth's favor, even when it really, really looks like that isn't possible. We're jumping ahead a bit now, but when he ends up really falling on her bad side, when he's in the Netherlands, his brother Ambrose writes a letter to him saying that he'd be better off in the furthest reaches of Christendom than ever coming back to England when Elizabeth is is that angry at him. But he still manages to bounce back from that one as well. I think a lot of the key to that is lessons learned. If we look through the generations of the Dudley family, and again, I think this perspective is is essential to understanding Robert and, and where the Dudleys get to under Elizabeth. Edmund Dudley made no friends and seems to have made no attempt to make friends. John Dudley did much, much better at making friends, making allies, making connections. But obviously that lets him down in the end. He makes more enemies than friends. There's also, at times, John isn't ruthless enough. He tends to forgive people when politically it might do him better not to. And Robert doesn't seem to make either mistake. He makes connections, friendships, certainly, but I think connections is the better word. He has allies. He's a master of rumor. And his sister, Mary Dudley Sidney, helps him a great deal in that as well. She's very important. And she really, I think, comes out in the book as well. And he doesn't mind throwing people, this is anachronistic, but under the bus. He will do what it takes to stay in power. And there's no evidence that he has anyone killed at any point that I can think of. But certainly he doesn't mind discarding people when he needs to. I think a lot of the lessons are learned in the negative from his his grandfather and from his father, but in the positive from his mother, who, as I said before, was a real master of navigating the court and of preserving the family. What's our takeaway? What do you want us to leave your book thinking about? I suppose I would rather people leave the book feeling something and feeling a connection to the past. I wrote the book to be entertaining and evocative, not just because that's fun, (laughs) but also because I think writing in a way that borrows from fiction can help us connect to the past, which inevitably allows us to learn from the past in a way that might be more helpful to us than just reading something that tells us what happens. You know, it's a classic maxim of screenwriting, show, don't tell. And I think that that is helpful in historical writing as well. It allows us to be present emotionally in in the past and, and to understand them in a deeper way than just intellectually. So I hope that people feel something on reading it. I, I felt things on writing it. I laughed at my own very silly jokes. I cried at the deaths of some of the figures in the book. And I definitely, I didn't emerge anyone's biggest fan, aside from maybe Jane Dudley, Duchess of Northumberland, who I think is great. But, you know, it isn't supposed to be a defense of anyone in particular. But it's hard not to spend time with people in the past and to have this sort of bird's eye view on a human life and not feel something out of it. So I think in terms of what I want people to leave the book with stems from that. I've said several times before about a sense of a long view of intergenerational legacy. It's called The House of Dudley. That that comes from Letters of the Time. Robert Dudley talks about how sad he is 
to be the last of his house because neither he nor his brother have any living children. There is a sense in which the family is all important to them, especially by the time we get to Robert's generation. So this legacy of the family over these generations has has negative effects in terms of their reputations, in terms of how they are treated, how they're thought about, what their options are in the Elizabethan period. But for them can also, I think, be a very positive thing. I think there is a real affection for each other. There is a real importance placed in the family and in its maintenance and its continuance and its rise. And we only get that by looking at the family over several generations throughout the Tudor period. I had to, at various points, section the book according to reigns, for instance, or the lives of the people in it. But that is just sections within a book that takes a much wider perspective. And and I really, really, really deeply hope that it gives people a different perspective on the Tudor period and of some of its main figures. I learned a great deal and, as I said, felt a great deal in writing it. And so I suppose at the end of the day, I just hope people reading it have a very similar experience. Well, your blending of history and politics, especially in this tumultuous dynasty, it's absolutely just brilliant because most people forget how it was like moving pawns around and making deals and alliances. And we think about the clothes and the personal relationships that Henry had with his wives or Robert had with Elizabeth, but really it was a political game. And you brought that up, and I love your book. And when will it be released in the U.S.? So it's currently only available in the U.K. Um, You can order it from the U.K. if you are elsewhere. Waterstones allows international shipping. I think Blackwell's cheap or free international shipping. So you can get hold of it. Or it will be released in the United States and in Canada at the beginning of March. So you can you can pre-order it now. It is available on Barnes and Noble and various other booksellers now for pre-order. And I think it's the sixth or seventh March that it should come to your door. And it's got a fancy new US cover as well, which is different from the UK cover. So if you already have the UK one, well, you can you can get the other one <laughs> and it will be a new cover as well. Oh, so many of us do collect UK and US first editions. So you really hit the nail on the head with that one. And I want to see if you'll come back when it launches in the US and Canada. Oh, gosh, I'd love to so much. It'd be fantastic to chat again. Well, let's plan on that. And you can tell us then even more about the book, what you have going on. I know right now you have some courses and book signings going on and some lectures. How can we find you and discover these on social media? Absolutely. So I have a website, which is just joannepaul.com. Simple. I am on Twitter at at joanne underscore paul underscore. I'm also on Instagram, which is at Dr. Joanne Paul. And you mentioned the course. I am teaching a course that people can sign up for now, which is all about the House of Dudley and what it tells us about the Tudor period. And that's with Roundtable 92 
New York. So if you can find it on my website, you can Google Roundtable and my name, it will come up. But that's starting at the end of October. And I think there are still places available. So if you want to spend five weeks thinking about the tutors from a totally new angle with me, it'd be fantastic to see you on that course. Well, I think that sounds great. And I want to thank you again for joining me today and joining all of us at All Things Tutor. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us and for making the magic happen. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to All Things Tutor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tutor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.